Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning, baby. Good morning. Oh, excuse me, sir. Good morning, Wichita Church. It is good to see everyone. Um, I I have to confess. That's how we're starting. Uh, last night, as I was sleeping, I had a dream. We're going to look about a dream today, slightly different dream. Mine was weird. You ever had a weird dream? And then you wake up and someone says, explain it to me. And you're like, I don't think I want to be thrown into that kind of facility later on today. No, I don't think I will. Mine was, I think I was swimming, I think. But I woke and I had struck my wife. And I was like, dun, dun, dun. Someone's like, have you, so now if someone says, bro, have you, have, you, have you ever hit your wife? I'm like, well, kind of. Uh, I was swimming and whammo, she got it right in the eye. And I, we were both slightly delusional. And then I was very, very aware. I was not swimming. I don't know if I was sinning, but I wasn't swimming for sure. And I tried to console her and ended up pulling her hair. So... If you find one of the Hendersons, you might find us to be slightly more tired than average this morning. And so when you wake up and you're tired, even like my mustache won't obey. I'm like, no amount of Mac. I feel like Wario. I'm like, oh, it's one of those mornings. Uh, maybe it's just Satan trying to get in the way of a great lesson. I, it seems unlikely, but maybe. Uh, Luke chapter 4. That's right. Mason, take your composing questions as soon as. Now we're continuing on our kind of first principles. We're back to the basics this morning. Luke chapter 4, verse 42. It says, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when he came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because I, I was sent. Chapter 9, the book of Luke. In verse 1, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God, and to heal the sick. Same the book of Acts chapter 8. Even my fingers are tired this morning. Goodness. Acts chapter 8. You can turn the page, bro. You can. You guys are so encouraging. It says in verse 12 of Acts chapter 8, it says, But when they believed Philip, he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. And what we're going to talk about this morning, and believe it or not, Dr. Bryant and I did not conspire to talk about the kingdom of God this morning. I think that's ironic. But we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is mentioned 54 
times in the Gospels. In the book of Matthew, which is the gospel to the Jews, we see it references the kingdom of heaven, which will make a lot of sense by the time we get to the end. One is because he's sensitive to the Jews that did not want to write the name God down. But also, God has ruled in heaven at all times. In fact, that is exactly the prayer that Dr. Bryant was talking about. In fact, the heart of this, of people, and this is the thing we're going to be talking about, is that why is this a basic? Why are we talking about the kingdom of God? How many of us have been around our church for more than 25 years? Quite a few of us. How many of us more than 30? 40? 155, anybody? No? It's like the 13th apostles among us is fantastic. No. It What's incredible, if you remember, if you've been around our churches a while, some of us, in fact, many of, of our circle and our fellowship of churches, if you study the Bible and do a first principles or a back to the basics or a foundations of faith Bible study, many of us who are younger than 20 have never done a kingdom of God study. How many of us have never actually done a Bible study on the kingdom of God? Because I remember growing up, for us, this is something, I became a disciple in Seattle. I never did this. Heard it preached occasionally, but this wasn't like a Bible study that I had done for a personal Bible study to understand my walk with Jesus. It wasn't a part of that kind of foundations of faith kind of a a Bible study series. And for many of us, and the reason why is because if you've been around our churches for a while, this was a topic, particularly a Bible study, that was done as a bit and with a little bit of leveraging. That it was meant and it was used as a tool to kind of to manipulate ICOCR fellowship of churches equals church equals kingdom equals saved. Which we, and let me say this plainly for those who haven't heard this in the last three decades, we do not believe we are the one true church. But we proudly fight to be a part of God's one true church. And I don't get to decide that. You don't either. Because what we're going to do, if we want to figure out whether we're in the kingdom, is we go to the king. Does that make sense, family? And this morning, why are we, we've talked about the word of God, we've talked about discipleship, and now we want to talk about the kingdom of God this morning. And for some of us, that might be an interesting or an unusual topic to put in this. But for me, in many ways, those three studies are what I call our our foundational studies, the first three, because they shape how we view everything. Through the lens at which we see the world, we see ourselves, we see one another, we make decisions about our marriage and finances, where I move, what I'm dreaming of doing. It shapes how I interact and see the world. And we kind of went inside out. We went with the word of God and that you and me, we open the scriptures and we go back to God's word and we don't just get ruled by feelings and culture and fads, right? Remember, we talked about that. And then we talked about last week when you move on and man, that becomes personal and we've got this relationship with Jesus and we've made him Lord or we've made him king. When one person makes Jesus king, we call them a disciple. When you get a group or a family of people who have made Jesus king, we call that a kingdom. But as we look throughout Scripture, this might be the most nuanced, deep, rich topics to study out in Scripture. There are, there are so many verses. 
the New Testament, 53 in the Gospels. We've got, what, another half a dozen in the book of Acts, another eight in the epistles. Many times these scriptures that you and I have read many, many times, very familiar with, talk about the kingdom of God, and we don't even think about it. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, talking about sins, that those who live like this will not what? Inherit the kingdom of God. And so, and, and so some of the stuff that we're going to touch on, there, and, I, and I'm saying this to go, look, there are levels to the Bible studies that you can do. You can kind of go PhD level, right? You're like, they're having, I think, the Telios Conference, you know, kind of the scripture and spirituality conference down in San Antonio. You can go full PhD level. Most of the, if I do that, half of the other half are like, finally, this is all I've been waiting for, bro. But you can absolutely study to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. It'll take you, what, six years plus another couple, two, three years. I'm looking at Dr. Bryant going, check my work on the timing. Well, I mean, we're looking at what? I mean, the better part of a decade before you even start doing that job. But we also have folks that are in here that are, that are veterans that served in the military. Some of us might be actively serving now. It doesn't take you eight years to be certified to be a combat, combat medic. But then you got you, you kind of circle it back and you go, well, I mean, it, almost everyone who works with kids has to be certified in first aid and CPR. And if you want to be, yeah, should be, hey, man, that's a whole other thing. Check for certification. And then you've got EMT. The whole point of this is that I think sometimes if we're not careful, we think that the only reasonable kind of Bible study is Ph.D. level. And I think if that's the case then one, a lot of the Bible doesn't make sense because so many, not only were they preaching to novices who were just getting to know this, these, this material, most of the men that were preaching it were not PhD level students and wouldn't qualify to go. But as we've seen, the kingdom of God is not something that's just classroom material. It's in fact, they went throughout the gospels and preached it, that it says that they went out and they were taught. In fact, Jesus sent them out to preach the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of God. And friends, when we come to church, we have to understand that the Bible isn't American. It isn't a Western text. And in so many ways, what we love is we want it to be about just me, just me and the king. I, the king's perfect. Isn't it a great idea? It's just me and the king. It's just me and Jesus. Jesus has never sinned against me. It's just me and him. He's perfect. But that's not the full good news, friends. It's actually not just a king. It's the good news of the kingdom. And I think it's, it's helpful for us to take a step back at a wide angle lens. One, because it's inspiring and faith building. But two, because I think what it ends up doing is helping us to see what we're doing here in this room today. And what we want to be doing every day as we walk in Jesus' way. Does that all make sense, friends? And at the heart of this is exactly what Jesus taught, what we talked about at communion. Is that what is at the heart of this? What, what is anywhere that God is king? But the problem is, is that be a little bit generic and vague. And often vague is uninspiring and not so It starts with the heart of that Matthew chapter 6 passage. 9 and 10 where it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the heart and the prayer of those who are real disciples of Jesus and the people who are in the kingdom. But we're going to be talking about some of this and some of the basics. Inevitably, there will be people in here that go, well, bro, you didn't talk about that. Yeah, we, we don't have enough time. It's not a full Saturday long-term session. If you want the PhD version, uh, come grab me after. We'll go. I would say get a cup of coffee, but we should probably get a pot of coffee together because there's a lot to talk about. But what I want to talk about is for those of us in here to put, I think, a really crucial part of our lens back on and see how we see one another, what we're really doing, and why it's so terribly important. There is no more important organization in human history or on the planet right now than God's church his kingdom. There is simply nothing else more important. There is no answer and no solution for justice, racism, abuse, uh, hitting your wife through a dream, or because of honest fits of rage and a lack of control, or maybe it's just because that's what you a broken way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Whether it's abuse and cycles of drug addiction or pornography and secrets and violence and this this dark underbelly of humankind that honestly in the church we don't often get exposed to very much unless we choose to go find it that this is the most important thing the most important organization that exists or will ever exist it's god's kingdom does that make sense so far family so let's talk about this I want to do my best to not misteach this and have someone come up and go, bro, that's, you know, you're, you're the reason why we don't teach it anymore. I, I'm going to try to do justice today. So, but forgive me, uh, and I've got a great cup of coffee, hopefully, to help. If you've got, you got a Bible, turn over to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Speaking of dreams. So, what we have, what we have here... Um, in the first century, as we look at Jesus' time, and we look throughout, in, throughout the Gospels and through the book of Acts, as they're preaching the kingdom of God, we've got this unbelievably wild time that's happening in first century Palestine. And if you look, even you'll start to see this woven into a couple of different conversations in the New Testament. One, Jesus talks about false messiahs, but even in Acts 5, when Gamaliel's talking about the Pharisees opposing this upstart, this Christian movement, this Jesus people that are starting. He says, be careful that you don't them the way you think you should, because if it's from God, you'll end up just fighting God and they're going to win anyways, right? He goes, but do you remember? And then he starts talking about the false messiahs and these people who thought highly of themselves and they started something and God just dispersed it. If you read church history or even ancient history of this time, there was an anticipation, there was an energy, there was an angst in first century Palestine, for several reasons. One is because they were under Roman enslavement. I mean, they were captives. They weren't living in freedom. They were in their own home country, but they certainly weren't free. But they had been reading, these Jews had been reading prophecies about this coming, this conquering king and suffering servant, who they in many ways thought were different kings, because it was very difficult to reconcile that paradox or that tension which Jesus fulfilled both sides perfectly. But they saw this king and, this, and all of these visions and prophecies, but there, had, there was this, this culmination. People were starting to get an energy of something's coming, something's, something's ready to happen, and these false messiahs were coming up. And there's a reason why that is. In the book of Daniel in chapter 2, we're going to read something 
It's a phenomenal, it's a dream, but it helps us understand how so many Jews were thinking in the first century, and it sets the stage about why this language is so important. Daniel chapter 2, in verse 26, it says, The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No man, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. I want to give us a little bit of context. Right now, we are in the middle of the Babylonian exile. God's people have been taken. So we see Assyria has actually taken the first two tribes. Babylon has rolled in and has now taken the other ten. And now they are completely enslaved. Babylon, anybody remember studying out like the Babylonian Empire and King Nebuchadnezzar? And especially trying to read, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar. It's just, you're like, it feels like you have a speech impediment trying to figure out some of these ancient kings. This isn't mythology. This is ancient history. Right? I think I learned it in like fourth or fifth grade or something. This And he, King Nebuchadnezzar, comes and comes to all of these magicians, all of his wise men. All the people said they can tell the, tell the future. We can tell you the, what the gods are saying. And King, Keb- King, <laughs> yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that, that doesn't just wake him and his wife up. Amen. He's tormented by it, and he wants to know what does this mean. And none of his guys can do it. And in fact, he tells them, I'll kill all of you unless you guys can figure out what I'm saying. And then, and then they go, well, tell us, and, you know, tell us the dream, and we'll, we'll figure it out for you. He goes, no, 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 not so fast. You, you're the wise man. You're the enchanter, diviner. You tell me my dream and interpret it, or I'm killing all of you. And then they get worried because they're all shams. <laughs> That's this beautiful, man, you read the Bible, you, just, you can't help but to laugh. But we're back here in verse 27. So that's why Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. Now follow this. Try to paint the mental picture. It's really amazing. Verse 29. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. This is about the future. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. For as for me, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And the head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, because you can, you can kind of get this picture like this Statue of Liberty. I think of it probably looking something like a Roman centurion, even though we're about 500 years too early. That's the picture. I have this huge statue, this menacing look. You can think, think like envision the Statue of Liberty in your mind. And, but he says in verse 34, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces. 
and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay, partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united anymore that iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that struck and broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will happen, what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, if you've ever read and studied the book of Daniel, it is a it is a compelling book. There are timelines and prophecies all over it that have I mean, to the, they're spooky accurate. But th- in this picture, what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar, the ruling king, this is a world empire, one of the first real, truly world-dominating type empires in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, it's just the known world at that point was taken over. And, and he has this vision of this statue of liberty of gold and with silver and bronze and iron that mixes with clay. And, he's, and this thing gets shattered. And you see the picture is that not by human hands, like God or some, some takes this rock, carves it on a mountain and throws it. And where does the rock hit? The feet. It hits the part that has iron that begins to mix with clay. And he says, and then what happens is that this whole statue just, it shatters, it breaks into pieces. And like wind on the, uh, just taking the, 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 the chaff away, it blows this thing away. And the only thing left is this rock that was thrown by God. And it doesn't remain a rock that it grows up and it turns into a mountain that fills the whole earth and in itself will endure forever. That's the picture. And what I love about this is that oftentimes when we do a Bible study, we're like, man, what's that mean? And I love Daniel goes, this is what it means. And you go, great, because prophecy, especially for those of us that are not Jews and not first century Palestinian, or in this case, fifth century BC Palestinians, you and I are looking at this going, what in the world does that mean? And a lot of prophecies aren't always completely clear. It's like a Scooby-Doo puzzle. Like that's got 15 pieces, but four pieces inevitably have been chewed on by your kids. You don't, you don't have the full picture. It's a little like that. But this part nails it and he goes, this is exactly what's happened. 
And he's saying that these four medals, these four parts of the statues are four global kingdoms. We got history majors in the room. We know Daniel nails it. Babylon is the one that he's speaking to at this moment. Babylon is taken over from Assyria, but Assyria was a blip on it. Now they took the, the, the southern kingdoms, those two, but they did not take the northern ten. And so what ends up happening is we see King Nebuchadnezzar rises up and takes them over and does exactly what God said he would do, is take his entire people into captivity. That's exactly what's happening. After them, what arises? Medi-Persian Empire. And this would be, in a, where we're sitting in the book of Daniel, it's probably right around just before the 6th century. So we're probably talking about middle, late, late 500s. Assyria, sorry, Persia, about 100 years less than that. In the early 500s is going to rise up and they're going to take over. In fact, they're going to conquer Babylon that they thought was unconquerable. They're going to conquer them in a day. Wipe them out. Replace them. Then after that, what we see is that a small guy, Alexander, rises up and leads what is probably one of the largest military conquests in history and would become known as Alexander the Great and would take the Greek Empire by the three, into the 300s and would take over, and that's why the lingua franca, the, the, the normal tongue of even the biblical age, almost 300 years later around Jesus' time, was still koine, in Greek created not just an empire they created a culture and they spread it around that's actually how God united culturally linguistically and then well by the mid 100s or so 160 the Roman Republic not yet a Roman Empire would raise up and end up toppling the per, or the, uh, the the Greeks at that point in 27 AD we would see officially the Roman Empire would become still to this day in many ways, the strongest empire that we've ever seen rule the face of the earth. And so we watch as what is, to him, supernatural prophecy. To us, it's basic, normal elementary school history. And, and Daniel nails it. He's all, you guys, are we all following this about the history. It's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what he's talking about. To this point, the Greeks and the Romans, they, they don't even exist. They're not even a blip on the radar. The Spartans and all of that story is awesome. They're small city-states. They're, they're out in the middle of nowhere. World empires, we're, we're a ways away from that. And Daniel goes, guys, this is the statue. You're seeing things of years, of, of, of centuries to come. And, and what we start to see is that there's mysteries. There are clues in these prophecies that give us massive indicators. One is that there is this rock that's cut out that will become what the God's kingdom. He says, a kingdom of God will raise up and will never end. But that rock, in the imagery of it, where does it hit the statue? The feet, which tells us exactly at what part of human history do we see this come into play? It's during the Roman Empire. And so these Jews that have been obsessing over these prophecies for hundreds of years, they see the punch coming. They've been studying this. There's an anticipation. And this idea of the rock that God would establish his kingdom, obviously it sees that, you, but you see this language about how the God's kingdom would destroy all the others. You can see why you would want the kind of militaristic justice that many of them were hoping for. That's why they wanted to crown Jesus by force, if you remember that. 
They're envisioning a very different kind of kingdom, but they're anticipating God starting a kingdom nonetheless. We following this one. And there, there are many other passages in the book of Joel, the book of Isaiah, about the coming of the kingdom or the mountain of the Lord that would be another piece of imagery throughout, especially Isaiah. And so this lays the groundwork for this anticipation. Now you can imagine if you are a first century Jew and you are, man, you're right around the time of Jesus, you're starting to see, hold on, we've got the fourth big new hitter and you're starting, you read the book of Daniel and you're like, hold on, we've got a new empire raising because turn with me to Luke chapter one. I want to set the, the, the stage a bit because for those maybe, we may not, this may not land for us. Because you're like, what is the big deal? False messiahs? Anyone? Why would the Pharisees be trying to murder messiahs? Why isn't every, you know, why aren't we more open to this? Man, the tension, the anticipation, the angst, the anger, the, the enslavement, man, it just culminated. And there was so much hope in what could be a real movement, a real kingdom that would be militaristic and that would free them. Makes sense. In Luke chapter, so then we fast forward into in verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priest. Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And when you start to go into this, the reason why we're framing this is in the book, right before John the Baptist is born, as well as Jesus is born, in that year, we are now under King Herod the Great's rule, and we are firmly in the middle in fact, at, the, at some of the strongest heights of the Roman Empire ruling. The page has turned, and we're in it. And so when we start talking about the kingdom, we start asking some questions, not all of which we're going to get into every nuance today, of course. But we start asking questions like, okay, so then God's always ruled. His will has always been done in heaven. The kingdom of God coming to earth is about your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If it's coming to earth, we've got this question. When did that happen? What, when? Okay, what, what? Well, we talked a little bit about what is it. Okay, then who's in it? And probably more importantly, how do I know I'm in it? We got, you know, we start having questions. We start going, well, tell me more about this. And I want to answer a couple of these because I think they're really important. When did it get established? Turn over to Matthew chapter three. Hopefully you're taking notes. If not, you can get your notes from a friend after class. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, says in those days, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, it says in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? We're in the book of Matthew. So he's using the word heaven, which makes total sense. But one more chapter over in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 17, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to, rep to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So we've got both John the Baptist as his public ministry starts and Jesus in his public, public ministry start is saying that the kingdom of God is near. There's something approaching. What's going on here? Sometimes we get stuck and get a little bit funny about, okay, exact, but like, tell me the day, tell me. Was it 4.30 on Friday? Is that when the kingdom came? Uh, and sometimes we've got an answer, and sometimes we think we have. And in Luke chapter 17, 
we see actually the Pharisees asking a very similar question. Luke 17 and verse 20 says, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is, and reading from the older NIV, if you've got a new NIV, it says, in your midst, which kind of feels King's, King's James, in ye's midst, I don't, you know, and, and if you're like me, you're like, well, what, what does that mean? Some translations say that it is among you. The truth of it is, is there's been a little bit of a question. And going, so Jesus, no, McFly, hello. The kingdom of God's already here. It's, it's among you. I'm right here. Hello. Or is he going, no, the kingdom of God isn't like with the massive armies and the fortress and the executions and the demonstration of the empire. No, it's within you. This is a kingdom of God inside you. It's a spiritual thing. Which one of those explanations are right? I think the answer is yes. And so as we look at this, and, and sometimes we've gotten stuck on this funny point, so then, then when exactly, so did it come with Jesus' birth, or did it come in Acts chapter 2, when he's you know, ascended and the first sermon? And the answer is, we, we don't really know. Because, well, if the king is showing up, is the kingdom arrived? Well, kind of. But if you don't have the rest of disciples and we haven't got him under the same rule here and we haven't established the king as king and crowned him is it a kingdom yet huh? and i go this is the area where phd levels in theology to me matter far less than the point of the king has come and a kingdom is meant to be established and he rules it and baby it ain't ever gonna end so which month which in this 38 month period of public ministry to begin we don't really know. Is the illustration going like in waves where the first wave was Jesus, then the second wave was in Acts chapter 2? Because the coming or the kingdom has come, is coming, and has yet to come. I've heard that explanation. Anybody heard that before? And you scratch your head and you're like, I, I didn't have enough coffee this morning to figure that one out. And in some ways we do see this because Jesus came and he's going, the kingdom has come. It's has come in your midst, is how that would translate. Past tense. But we also know that some of these guys are awaiting to inherit the kingdom of God, that it's going to come when he, on his second coming. And I think the answer is yes. Did, did we see the kingdom roll out in an unbelievable way when the king showed up? Yes. Could you make a case from Hebrews 2, or even Philippians 2, that until Jesus died and was resurrected, he wasn't fully crowned king yet? Yes. And I go, I think, but, but do you have enough IQ points to care or dissect and, and, and cut across? What, what exact day? I don't know. But you know what I do know? Is that the good news that the king has come, the king of kings and the lord of lords, and not only has he been the sacrifice for our sin, he didn't stay dead, he's risen. He is crowned king. And we get to be a part of that movement. And it has come and it comes to earth. There's nothing, not Satan himself, not the gates of hell will overcome. And that's an important point. And I wonder, do we get stuck and start majoring in the minors a little bit? 
and start caring a little bit more about which week and instead of how's our heart and are we in it? Does that make sense, family? I know I can do that. And this is all fun, awesome Bible. I was playing in the weeds with some of this stuff, you know? They're like, I could write a you know, dissertation about making the case. I was doing it this week. And I was like, well, Philippians chapter 2 and Hebrews 2. And, what? and I go, have you ever met someone and said, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And you start turning over and tar- talking about the fine nuance of theology. And then they go, oh, my goodness, I, I just want to fall on my knees and worship the Lord. <laughs> Not me ever. But that the king of kings has come that, that this is a door isn't closed, that, you know, he hasn't dropped the gate and said, sorry, no, if you're not perfect, you can't, no, you, you do something. This is a king opens and goes, I want you in it and I'll tell you how. Come on. And he didn't just rule from the king, you know, the kingdom up in heaven. He's not Zeus on a throne. He got off the throne and got on a cross. That's our king. Does that make sense? And I think we have to pivot and go, and this is why when we, this is why this part is so fundamental. Because if the only soul that the king is most concerned for you is the person in the mirror, then you're missing the good news. Actually, that's what makes it so good. It's not all about me. Because sometimes we think, oh, it's all about the best. I'm like, no, I think that's a curse. So what's this beautiful illustration to understand the coming and the still-to-come kingdom? Was it like a soft opening and a grand opening restaurant? I kind of like that because food's involved. Is it like pregnancy? That a woman's pregnant, does she have a baby when she's three months pregnant? Yet, well, not Exactly. Then when the baby's born, we go, well, the baby's still going to grow and continue to grow up. There's, this is a process. Dates that are significant. But the most important point is we've got a beautiful life here. Does that make sense? So let's talk about what I think is probably the most important question. Is who and how to get in. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7. Who and how to get in? What scripture? Oh, is my mic? I feel like my mic is moving on me. Could be the rogue mustache that I. Sorry about that. Chapter 7 and verse 21. And it says, Not everyone who says to me, this is Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, King, King, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, never knew you, Away from me, you evildoers. It's a really interesting thing, and I, I think with something that's an important point to underline. As we're studying the Bible with friends, or even as we study, not careful, we can drift off of and fall off one of two cliff edges, I think. We can drift off the edge 
of all grace. Jesus, it's, it's all hugs. There's no expectation. In fact, any expectation of you in any way would somehow be equated with um, works, which that's actually works of the law and that coming from a Pharisee. There's a whole other Bible study there, which we don't often teach on the other side of. But works as in if, if it, and then maybe some of the engineers are like, man, I did physics, I did chemistry, so are we measuring works by calories? That's how you measure work, right? I mean, come on, like, what are we talking about here exactly? And going, are we going to fall off the cliff edge of, okay, it's no works, all grace, no expectation, no performance, no, nothing is required of you. Which is hard because you read John chapter 6, and what's the works required of me to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, the work that's demanded is for you to believe. So is your faith a work? So how does your faith save you? You get into some funny word games. If we want to start playing games with God's word, you can. But at the heart of this thing, again, and sometimes some of us have been brought up around that version and we swing to the other side. This is me. This is my tendency. Because I I saw so much hypocrisy on that side and I go, I'm out of here. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. And so... The other side, though, if we're not careful, and this is true, especially in our churches, as we talk about discipleship and engagement and connection, and that we don't believe that we're all predestined and pre-programmed by God, and he does it all, we do nothing. That No, we, we believe we've got free will, that we love God, and that's important. That that choice is important, but if we're not careful, we'll drift off the other edge that it's about performance. It's about perfection, and man... You better get a 99 on this test. And any moment that you've sinned at any time, it's almost like we're hopping the line of, did I fall away from God? Did I confess fast enough? And we don't understand grace on that side either. Does that make sense? But there are warnings that the kings are giving us of going, don't fall over, don't, don't, don't fall either cliff edge. That, that the, our king sits, as the Hebrew writer says, on a throne of grace. But there is no grace for those that do not submit entirely to the king. Period. Luke 14, counting the cost about following. He says it's like this king going up against another king and he knows he's going to lose. What does he do? Sends a delegation. What is that? We've all seen war, the ancient war movies. Man, if you're, if you're going to die, it's a white flag of surrender. And what are the terms? You tell me, because if you don't let me live, I'm dead. That's the deal, right? Does that make sense? And what are the terms of peace? He's given them to us. You cannot be my disciple, he says. This is about total surrender. But that means that the king of kings gets all the power in your life and miracles and liberty becomes to happen in your life too. And that you don't have to be perfect to help other people get saved because what you're doing is you're just a beggar that's found bread and going, dude, come check this out. Look at what I have found. The well I found, not the well, well, I guess technically in some ways it's the well that we become. We become wells of living water, right? Friends, we have to understand, and if you're visiting with us, been around for a while make no mistake whether you were baptized 20 or 30 years ago or you have yet to be baptized that's a great other bible study we'll get there in a few weeks the bigger issue is are you a person that just says lord lord or do you do what jesus says period 
That's the deal. And that doesn't matter if you started following Jesus or haven't yet started. That is a fact about God's kingdom. That's what it means when God is king. We surrender. And when he says to forgive, we don't go, it's too hard. You don't understand. He goes, really? I went to a cross to forgive you. What have you jumped on? Well, Jeff, you don't understand what they did to me. He goes, I I think Jesus goes, I know exactly what they've done to you. I've been through it all, man. I took all sin in my body so that I could look at you and go, I know what it's like and I've overcome. Follow me. I'm preparing a place for you. You can do this, but you can't do it on your own. But with Jesus, you can. He says, there is no other option. In fact, there is not even a relationship with Jesus. He goes, I never knew you. This is wildly offensive in 21st century American Christianity. The audacity for that guy to tell me that I don't know Jesus. I wonder, isn't it more important to ask Jesus if he knows you? Because if I show up to the White House and go, hey, President, what's going on? How are you? I know Jesus, man. I met you years ago. We're close friends. President Joe Biden is not going to go, oh, Jeff, yeah, come on in. He will do just like this. I do not know you, security, right? I mean, these guys are going to usher me off professionally and promptly. Yeah. guess that's what's so beautiful but it's total surrender or it's not it's complete or it's not john chapter three actually i am not going we're going to move on no go to john chapter three. Oh, i love this passage so much i am tr- john chapter three i'm trying desperately to repent, to be more brief with my lessons, family. I blame it on the language shift. I'm, I'm getting fluent in English, like a reasonable excuse. Um, John chapter 3, look at this, in verse 1. This is a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Man, what an unbelievable statement to say. I mean, he's just going, we're deniable. Oh, my goodness. And the people, weird, the guys that were, his colleagues were trying to out of the synagogue if they publicly profess their faith. No wonder they're meeting at night. So verse 3, and I love this. Jesus often answers the questions that the person didn't get to asking yet. I love that. So he didn't the question, but in verse 3, in, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time womb to be born you're like man sometimes there's things that not even a phd will solve you huh you're like no kidding uh yeah yeah did you think that's what we were talking about hey mom can we talk i'm a terrible weekend plan for you no wait, wait, wait. of course not dude of course not no kidding dude you know what i mean but you look at this and it's like 
In verse 5, Jesus answered, if you're not laughing in your quiet times, you're not reading. That's how I feel. I'm like, oh, that's how I like my humor, dry and witty. Verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and, and, and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised. My thing must be born again. Friends, I think another amazing thing is that the kingdom of God coming is about honest-to-goodness salvation and transformation of our lives. It's not about tweaking your religious beliefs a little bit. It's not about a little bit of feel-good and a little bit of let's, let's, let's get the oil change on your religious vehicle. No, Jesus goes, man, this is like old and new wine skin. Pull the whole old skin out, man. This is new wine, new skin, new life. We're not patching up the old thing. This is transformation. This is, this is renewed, revived. This is people coming out of the grave different. And I wonder for some of us, man, as we've come to church, even in the last decade, 10, 15 years, we come to a looking for almost a, a little bit of a, we want to put shine back on the religious experience. But I'm wondering, friends, do you want to be born again? I'm totally new. That means the first Jew's got to die. That's what this is like. It's so, it's not about improvement. I don't know up after a Christmas party in the fraternity. We threw the biggest party at the University of Washington. Our Christmas party that happened in late November, apparently we weren't good with numbers, Phi Delta Theta. Um, everyone was gone for an actual Christmas party. We threw it down. It was crazy. I remember my freshman year, God opened. I wasn't a Christian yet. I'd been reached out to by Christians. They didn't say God, so I didn't come. That's another Bible study or another sermon, but studying honors engineering, wanted to become an astronaut. God put me in honors engineering class. Engineering was an instructor. Got to know her. See, you get to know her, and she's like, she goes, oh, I did know you. That was helpful. And, and she goes, well, what do you want to do? And I go, well, you know, all the engineerings are competitive. I'm hoping to get into, you know, like electrical or, no, no, that was my, which one did you want to do again? You know, who knows a guy? You know, he, he actually works for me. You know, it's that kind of, wow. It's, it, that's when I started to know the who you know is really more important than what you know kind of a thing. And I was like, oh, my goodness, God's opening this door. Freshman in, a, in an advanced lab working with chemical engineering. It was a chemical engineering lab with all these postdocs. I was a freshman. They're like, well, what, what question would you like to study out? I'm like, I don't even know what questions to ask. I don't. These guys are brilliant, smart, wicked, wicked smart, crazy smart people. God was opening all these doors. It's like an eight-lane highway to success. It was everything I dreamed of. But I didn't, I didn't party, and I wasn't a cool kid in high school. I was a nerd. But at university, the nerds started to get cooler. And I was also in the fraternity, so we're, we're all drinking. We're hanging out. And I remember one of the girls I invited to the party. We got, I would often, this is how bad it got, I would drink to, to blackout. Terrible. And so there's a good chunk of that night I didn't remember. I don't think we did anything. But I remember waking up with this gal in my bed the next night, the next morning. And I remember in my head going, I've got everything I've wanted. Is this as good as it gets? You ever had that moment? And I went, is this it? Is this what we get? This is as good. 
hot girl, career path, all the connections, money's going to come, whatever. I'm like, is this because I feel empty? And I remember, and I think that's maybe why God had me wait five or six months until I really studied the Bible, because I remember sitting down and looking at the scriptures, and when he said, you got to again, I go, that's exactly what I want. That's exa- I don't want my old life patched up. Can I get a new one? Can I get a new life? A new, you know, I read Revelation, the, get a new name, a stone. I want that. Can I get that, please? Can I get a character? Can I get a new conscience that hasn't been seared by so much pornography and impurity and drinking and... Can I get a whole new thing, please? Can I get no, no guilt and shame? Can I get that taken away? And you know what? Jesus' answer, as the king of all authority, he goes, that's exactly what you get. That is exactly it. That's the king. That's fantastic. And, that's, and Satan will try to do the same thing and doesn't have the power to do it. So what do we do? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to end here. Friends, what do we do? Is all this making sense? Okay. I'm like, is it only making sense to me? That's also possible. Matthew chapter 6. Who gets in? How do we get in from that last point? It's the people who don't just, we're not just, it's not about being religious. Religious people don't make it. People who surrender the king make it. People who follow make it. Who say yes to Jesus even before they know what he's going to ask of them. That's who makes it. That nothing's too big for him, so nothing that he asks is too big of us. And his grace fills in all the gaps, and his Holy Spirit gives us the power to do it. But we don't have to just patch up our old life. We get the whole new thing. And if you never heard this if you have never heard about being born again and repenting and coming back being born of the water and the spirit that sounds suspiciously like baptism and you're going i'll do anything but that if there is anything but that then you have not made king and that's why we go king jesus what do you want i'm you've never heard that my challenge is do that grab someone before you leave and go friend uh, hi i'm Help me understand this. He's like, well, I just came and visited too. Well, can then we both go find a guy? Because we both want to make this happen. Because there's nothing more, there's no more important decision you will make in your life. But in Matthew chapter 6, what do I do with this great message? As Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he has this whole section in chapter 6 about worry. Some of us think anxiety, which actually could be true. But he used the word concerned or, you know, don't worry. Worry, you can worry about things that, you know, are your survival. You can be anxious, but you can also be kind of obsessed and focused on whatever thing you like to do, whatever new. I know some of us are gadget folks. Some of us are experienced people. Some of us like new clothes. Uh, I found that I like cool socks. That's as fashionable as I get. I got NASA socks because when we went to Cosmosphere, the Nagels, which is awesome. I, I have a marker. I, I did. That's my, mo- you know, and whatever. My wife does the rest. I well, Or not. I did it. So, But some of us have our things and you're concerned, you're worried about the, the retirement or the ne- or, or more house or more car or more handbag or more vacation or more sin in secret or more your thing. 
So the worry can be survival, but the worry can actually be greed. It can be both. So I appreciate David's point. That, that resonates. So Jesus lands this in Luke chapter, sorry, Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. He says, so do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What do we do walking away from this? Friends, whether we follow Jesus for years or whether we're trying to figure out if we want to, my challenge, this king and this kingdom, this good news, when he says, what do you do with it? He goes, first. Now let me be very clear. Here's what he does. Seek it only. Religious weirdo that has no hobbies, can't relate to anybody. You don't take a shower, you smell a little bit. Maybe you don't, you don't have anything fun. People are like, what, what do you do for fun? I pray. What do you do for a lot of fun? I pray diligently and I fast. You're like, sounds like a great weekend. I'd love to hang out with you, right? No. Uh, seek it only. Uh, no, I don't. Just reaching out to the lost. That's my exercise. Oh, excellent play on words there, bro. Wow. No, that's not what he said. Amen. Amen. It's not meant to be monastic. It's not about being religious and weird. But it's about priority. It's about seeking first. Where does your worry take you? Where does you, your worry keep you from? Family, I, I just think seeking God's kingdom first. And I think he says his righteousness, says and his righteousness, that's getting right with God. So some of us, if you just define the kingdom of God as just being right with God, then you think Jesus has a speech impediment or that he's not smart enough to just narrow it down. He goes, no, no, no. This isn't just about you getting right with God. It's actually about you God's kingdom as well. And that kingdom is from all time all the way back to the beginning in heaven now on earth. Many times we call that his church. We don't meet the church. The church meets at this building. The church of the people. It's you and me. But my challenge is seek first his kingdom, his people. How do we do that? Basic. We love being chill here in Wichita. I do notice that at 9.55, or at 9, or 10.25, we have a radically different number of people in this room than at 10.40. Why is that? Does singing to, no, and I mean it. Why does singing to God not matter? And I think, I just, my is, friends, this is something that matters. Not because it matters to someone else. It's not about attendance. It's not your math class. Guys, it's about the Lord of Lords. It's the King. And his people coming together, it matters. It is something. The book of Hebrews says, man, what do you think you're coming to? This is the mountain. With us raising their voices. It's a beautiful thing. But I think it also begins to say the things that we believe and the lies, that your presence here doesn't matter that much. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, you need people in this room, but you are needed. You're desperately needed. But we seek it first. Basic thing, Wednesday night midweeks. 
And I go, some of us, we won't have a hard conversation or rearrange our schedule in order to just be with the body. And my challenge is, let's make those priorities. Yeah, I'm not talking about being weird and legalistic and there's never a good reason. Oh, I got COVID again. I'm here, bro. Please be less heroic. Stay home. Do you know what I'm saying? But it's about what the priority and the love is in our heart. And when we do that, what ends up happening is that there's a camaraderie and a connection and a power. And people, like Jesus said, when they see the love, not for the world, but for each other, they go, that's my followers right there. There's something special. I know many of us just to be here this morning fight our own bodies and our own our sickness and our illness. And I go, good on you. Thank you for being here. I think Jesus sees that and goes, that's heroic. I think some of us don't show because we don't think we're worthy enough. Or maybe we think the church isn't worthy enough anymore. And I go, let's, let's repent of all that. Because we're needed. You're needed. And the world needs us to be his kingdom. I'm going to ask all of us that can, let's stand. We're going to pray. And that will be our dismissal for today. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Father, and I pray that all of us that are here and those that are watching at home, that we're encouraged to know that we have this king that's full of truth, but full of grace, that you're full of power, that you've overcome death itself. You've overcome hell and the grave and all sin. You've, you've crucified the law. You've crucified our sin, God, that we come to you and we, find, we can find joy. We can approach your throne confidently. Father, and I pray that every day we do. But if we are today feeling like we've become people who just kind of say, Lord, Lord, that I pray that we'll repent and know that repentance is a beautiful path to freedom, not the path to condemnation, that it's the path to light and openness and honesty. And on this, this side of eternity, there is nothing that is more valuable and important than the freedom from shame, fear, and guilt. And that's a gift only you bring, God. Help us to be that. Help us to embrace that. Help us to be your kingdom in all of its glory, to bring glory to you, but to enjoy and the beautiful fruit and the blessings. Help us, Father, to, to crown you king in every way and to live in your kingdom until we see your face again. We love you, Father. Thank you for your word and thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen family. We are excused for a great time.